Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about the classical stuff you should know from classical educators who work at a classical school. Why are we so good at these intros? Who knows things? Listen. We need someone, we need to hire out someone to do our intros for us. I'm worried it would sound like the one you did, AJ, if we hired it out. That's right. They're kind of like, over the top! Whatever you crazy, did last time. The crazy gang. Let's, yep. let's not even go back to that. I, um, I wouldn't pay something for what I did. <laughs> that didn't uh, deserve my money. My name is Graham Donaldson, and I am here with <laughs> my good friends, AJ Hannenberg. That's me. And Thomas Magby. And that's me. And we all work at a classical Christian school in Austin, Texas called Veritas Academy. We don't really have like a, I guess, Go Defenders? Go Defenders. Is that like, you know, you got Go Big Blue and you've got like... Training hearts and minds for the glory of God? But you don't yell that out at a sporting event. Wait, you don't? I think <laughs> is that just me? <laughs> every oh, time wow. we yell defense, that's like our, our call. <laughs> yep, because we're like, the Even if we're on, fen- yeah. on offense, we can call defense, and it's still kind of If you us, have a great sense. classically themed thing that we can yell at at sporting events, please email us is at classicalstuffatveritasacademy.net. Could you imagine? So what would it be? I don't know. If we 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 could have a song that's like half in Latin. Mm, Yep. Um, The fight song for the University of Toronto, Go Blues, where I went to school, is part in Latin. Uh, I don't know what it means. It has to do with trees. (laughs) Um, I'm just imagining people hollering classical things at the refs, like "Thine eyes are clouded." (laughs) Those has to be in Latin. Anyway, so your um, judgment is besmirched. If you have been listening with any degree of faithfulness, or at least last week was your first week, you will know that we started talking about the Odyssey, and AJ is here to bring all of those pieces back together. He's here to kick out all of the suitors that that have been nesting in our podcast room for what? weeks, eating yes. our food, yep. drinking our coffee. Um, Graham, those aren't suitors; those are ants. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> we actually do have an we ant have problem. we got a little bit of an ant problem in this. It's okay, room. we're moving campuses we're moving in, campuses. in so a little big. while. And also, AJ, this explains why all of those axes are lined up against the wall, and why you're holding a bow and arrow. Oh, is that an Odyssey thing? That's, yeah, those are all Odyssey things. Okay. I don't have any axes. I do have a giant hammer. You do have a giant hammer. It's threatening. Where did it go? It's over it's there, there oh, on there. the leaning against it. the Sorry. desk. All right, AJ, Odyssey us, classicize us. Okay, we'll do. First, I, I thought that we, we've never really talked about, like we talk about classicism a lot, but we've never really talked about how we're Christian. Oh. Like that wasn't really a warning that we gave when we started this podcast. So I wanted to take a second and say, yes, we all have a worldview. We're all coming from a specific place. We all go to church. We, you know, I would say that we probably land pretty much near orthodoxy on a lot oh. of things not even near. We are nestled deep inside orthodoxy. Right. Yeah. I like Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. <laughs> so it, but, but we don't do that assuming, you know, we're, we're not trying to exclude people who don't believe the same thing. If you are not a Christian, if you don't believe the same things we do, that's fine. You are still welcome to listen to the podcast. We'll try to make it friendly to folks who don't have the same worldview. Um, we would love to hear your take on things. I just, I don't know. I thought I'd say something about it and sort of come out and sort of out us as Christians because we all are. And so we'll, we'll be speaking from that perspective. And if you don't like that, that's fine. Well, we, we'd love to have you continue to listen and hear your view on things whenever you feel like writing, writing in. Did you get a comment from anyone about that? Or you just wanted no, to say I was that? just listening and I realized that we just sort of have it as, as an assumption and never make it overt. So I thought we'd just make, put it out there for our listeners. It. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, we are talking about the Odyssey for the second time, which means a quick review might be in order. If you listened last time, this some of this will be review. If you didn't, then this might be a little bit new. The Odyssey is the story of Odysseus, a champion from the Trojan War who is returning home after the completion of the war. He's the guy that invented the Trojan horse. He is a commander. He's a king in his own right in his little island called Ithaca. He did not want to go to war because he had a young son that had just been born. He was... It's usually when, why they're young. <laughs> because they're, they were just born. You can oh, have a right. young son who was not just born. Oh. Right? I could have an eight-year-old. That's still pretty young. Okay, fair point. So he had a newborn child, and he tried to get out of it by acting crazy, and they caught him and made him go to war anyway, and he's is been this, gone for... Is this a story where he dressed up, like, dressed up like a lady? That's Achilles. Oh, I love that story. Odysseus pretended to be an insane person and started sowing salt on his own fields. Mm. He tried to pretend that he was insane. And then they took his 
new baby boy, Telemachus, set it in front of the plow so mm. either he could continue the ruse of insanity and kill his kid or, or go to war. Yeah. So they caught him. Really? I feel like crazy Odysseus probably could have even figured out a way to save Telemachus and continue to be crazy, be like, look at this strange carrot, and then pick up the baby and then keep plowing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he didn't. Yeah. Uh, so he's, <laughs> I like your rewrite, though. That was good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I enjoy that. So he Being, goes to yeah, war. I'm a clever guy. And the Odyssey is the story of his return from war. It takes him 10 years on the return trip. Most everyone on the return trip either dies quickly or returns home in short order safely. So he's been gone. There are a number of suitors vying for his wife's hand at home, and they are eating all of his wealth and drinking all of his wealth and treating his kid, staff, and wife without respect, just being general hoodlums. It's like having a bunch of frat boys living in your house for the entirety oh, of South by Southwest, gosh. but they don't go home. It's <laughs> oh, a great analogy. Oh. Yeah. That's exactly what, what it's it like. like. It's, yeah. it's a frat party in your house every day, eating all your stuff. So were the suitors not actually there for Penelope? Like, were they there for there the were, free stuff? There were 114 of them. That's a lot. There is no way that all of them thought they had a chance with Penny. Yeah. And not only that, but at the council where Telemachus tells them to go home, they say, we're going to continue to eat all of your goods mm. until Penny makes a decision. So they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They know, and, and they are actually called to the carpet by some other people in town who say, mm. yes, it's shameful. You are breaking the God's laws. You shouldn't do this. And they pretty much say, who's going to stop us? Well, there's they, a bunch of us. Out. Yeah. We're all powerful. You're an old man. You're a young kid. No one's going to challenge us until your mom makes a decision. Because I guess it's also... Like, um, Penelope had to keep them there because that's a part of the hospitality law, right? But they were abusing it. Is that? They were, they were abusing her hospitality. And okay. she actually kind of said, you know, you guys have to figure things out. And Tele Telemachus had told them to get out of his house. They just say no. Okay. Homer makes it very clear that they are in the wrong. Mm -hmm. So Odysseus, we find out that it's kind of implied that he's reluctant to go home because he doesn't know the situation. He doesn't know if his kid is still there or is willing to accept him as father. He doesn't know if Penelope has remarried. He actually told her to remarry when there was a beard on mm. Telemachus's face. He doesn't know if that's happened yet. He's not sure if he has a place. He could be facing all kinds of crazy things at home. So he kind of dilly-dallies and yeah. looks for adventure and looks for glory. He ends up visiting the underworld, talks to some of his heroes that say, glory's not worth it. What matters is the home, your son, your wife, being alive. And so his attitude changes and he starts heading home eventually comes home, kills the suitors, retakes his home. And it's the sort of uh, the story of coming of age of two men at once. Mm. We have the coming of age of Telemachus and the coming of age of Odysseus at the same time. And the imagery given is a union of his two sides, his wild side and his domestic side. So that's kind of the story of the Odyssey in review. That's the olive bush that we talked about last yeah, time. Yeah, that's the olive bush image that we, we encountered in book five of the Odyssey. And then it kind of returns later in the form of his big olive bush bed, which is kind of a cool bed. Yeah, sweet right? bed. Thomas, okay. did you ever uh, reconcile your two sides growing up? Uh, my wild side. Yeah, your wild side and your, and your domesticated side. Is uh, that, you, or I guess my other question is, do we think that that, is that like a thing that all men must do? I think it's a age? refined balance. When I was a kid and everyone else was jumping off cliffs, I would be the, or cliffs, I was the one that said, I don't think the risk-to-fun <laughs> ratio yeah. here is a good one. I'm not willing to risk my bodily well-being for a, a moment of fun. I was a stick in the mud. Yeah. And so I think I think there is a balance to be had between risk and glory and... Yeah, I'm, kind of, a, I'm kind of a stick in the mud, too. But um, uh, I think this is a, a website that you all also read, Art of Manliness. Is mm -hmm. that something you all have come across before? Mm. Never mind. That's okay. Um, I mean, I know, I know the website. And they've done some writing on how... Um, like the ideal that we tend to point to for, for masculinity is like the gentleman, mm -hmm. but like um, that's only a certain uh, uh, society that likes the gentleman. There is a, there's a society that prefers the ruffian. So mm -hmm. like um, even today you could say, what is the model of masculinity? Is it someone who's really good at fighting people or is it someone who is in public life? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Well, then you also have like the cowboy and the samurai yeah, and that kind of like person who is the law in a lawless place. Anyway, sorry, if you're, Hammer, if we... you're Nietzsche, you like the outlaw. He mm -hmm. said mm -hmm. the model of the true free man was the criminal. Yeah, uh, makes his own law and mm -hmm. then has the power to actually like uh, act out that law. So. Yeah. And for clarification, we think that, I don't think that's very, that's, that's kind of bad. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's a doof. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, but I do not agree with Nietzsche very often. But, but that, that's the nice part about this olive tree that it, it has true. both, that there is a wild side, but then there is a refinement to it also. Nietzsche's mustache is like his one redeeming yeah, one, quality. Yeah. 
Agreed. That thing's pretty sweet. I feel like it makes him kind of like one of those breen whales mm-hmm. or where he has, you know, the, the teeth that's a broom. I feel like if he mm. just sort of shoves mm-hmm. food through his mustache and then, like, <laughs> can suck the food off of it later. Yep. Like, well. I, I just imagine him only eating soup where he pours it through his stash and sure. then saves the little bits You've for later. you ruined facial hair for me, so that's great. Yeah, and I've probably discussed it our list. <laughs> All right, let's get Sorry, back guys. to uh, the Odyssey. All right, so today what I wanted to talk about was a couple other things relating to the Odyssey sort of vaguely. One is the hero's journey. And this is, it was a theory put forward in Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he talks about something called the monomyth or the hero's journey. And he's a mythologist. He has all these different stories and he started to recognize different elements that popped up again and again and again and again in stories and then kind of put them all together and describe them in an incredibly dry and boring book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, it is. I've read it. It Oh, it's so painful. It is just the worst. It does. So this is another thing, but I I really want to do a podcast on writing well because Mm. there's a lot of way. I was never taught to write well in high school or even college. Like the actual pure craft of writing. I don't I mean, I can't. It's one of those things where maybe I was and I didn't receive it. Like when I was in 10th grade, maybe I had this brilliant teacher that tried to do it. And I was like, derpy derp fart jokes. (laughs) And it just never happened. No, I was never taught it. (laughs) I never even butted up against the teaching of true style. And my question is, I'm not even sure if it's classical. The the writing manuals I'm coming Mm, from, mm -hmm. one is fairly recent Mm -hmm. and one is from the 60s. But I feel like that'd be beneficial for everybody, right? Could we we nudge it into classical? Yeah. Yeah, we probably could, although that writing manual like definitely telegraphs that it's from the 60s. We're talking Strunk and White. No, no. Strunk and White, I think that's Strunk and White's from too. like pre-World War One. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the one from the 60s is, it's clearly written to kids who are like sticking it to the man and riding motorcycles and say things like far out. Yeah, <laughs> it's written to, if I, if I understand correctly, I think it's a Stanford professor writing to 1960s He's realizing that all his students in the 60s are these countercultural, like, yeah. uh, uh, protesting the war. And he's like, so I hear you guys want to protest the war, but have you protested the war with proper writing <laughs> etiquette? <laughs> and it, it, so, yeah. So it's not it's stri- not strictly classical, classical but yeah. I've, I could probably find some classical sure, resources. Sure. I don't know. I, it's really interesting. Anyway. We've talked about rhetoric for the trivium stuff before. So that's true. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. But my main beef with Joseph Campbell is that he's really bad at writing concretely and mm. putting people in his sentences. There are no people in his book. It's all these ethereal ideas. And it's, oh, it's just painful Wait, to read. Um, but like, should a work of philosophy, I don't I mean, his is like literary criticism, but like, should, should that have characters in it? Not, I don't mean ideas. characters. Oh. I mean, make making people do stuff talking about people. So I could, a great example of this, and we are a little off track here, but don't worry, listen, like I'll get us back soon. That's the point of the whole podcast is to be off track, right? But one of our, one of our students was trying to write in her thesis about the, the concept that doctors evaluating each other would be better because they're, they're not always the ones being evaluated. So she put it ethereally, right? She said, the doctor will spend more time evaluating his compatriots than, than, being evaluated himself. It was this big, long thing when she could have put it in concrete terms. She could have said, he's going to spend more time on the judge's bench than in the convict's dock, right? Which mm-hmm. is an easier way to understand it. It's shorter. It doesn't deal only with ethereal ideas. And we get the point, mm-hmm. right? And the point is that there is there is a person in there. I'm talking about a doctor, right? As opposed to someone in the medical profession or I don't know, I'm just putting people in my mm. sentences is a, is a better way. We identify That's with cool. that more readily. The human mind works with concreteness and specifics and people rather than these big ethereal ideas. Mm-hmm. And if I do this podcast on writing, I'll give you far more examples from Strunk and White and from some other writing manuals. Cool. Anyway, yeah. back to it. So he writes this really painful book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and he puts forward his theory of the monomyth. And so I'm going to walk through a little bit of it because it's often related to the Odyssey and in fact, it's more closely related to Star Wars, which I know you guys know. And so I'll have you guys try to identify some of the spots where Star Wars and the Matrix come in because he well, actually... Lucas loved Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, he actually really? built Star Wars on the hero's journey in mm. the monomyth. So it's not just a coincidence. Yeah. He crafted his tale based on the monomyth. All right, but, so, but before Joseph Campbell wrote this, this was just a thing that he saw in um, works of literature. Common, yeah. common mm-hmm. features in myth. Okay. All right, so there's kind of three primary divisions of the hero's journey, right? It's kind of this big cycle. The first part is departure, second part, initiation, third part, return. So the very, f- and, and each one of those is divided into small phases. So at the very beginning of the hero's journey, there's the call to adventure. 
And the call to adventure is when something outside of his world kind of breaks into his world and asks him to to go out and do something, right? It's a it's an inbreaking into normal life. What would this be for Luke? Help me, Obi-Wan. In You're the, my only hope. Only You're hope. my only hope. He yeah. gets he gets a message from R2D2. So uh, yeah. It's for um pretty sure it was a lady. Or, but R2 it brings comes the message. out of R2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, goes, it's, it's the is, but the message is from Leia. Yeah, from Leia via R2. That was really good. Thanks. Yeah, that was really good. All right. So he, so the the call comes, and then the hero will typically refuse the call. That's the next yeah. phase. So call to adventure, refusal mm-hmm. of the call. So what is this for Luke? The, I can't do this. The, we got the harvest coming. My cows. No, my moistures. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. He says, we have the harvest coming. I can't. There's another... Uncle Owen needs my help that's in good. harvesting my mo- the moisture. <laughs> yep, he sure does. What about in the Matrix? What's the um, call to adventure in the Matrix? I have a job. Uh, no, the call, call is, uh, is follow the rabbit, follow the white rabbit. Follow the, the white rabbit, rabbit yeah. right? And it's it's an inbreaking into his normal world. Mm-hmm. It's not something that happens normally, yeah. and he Trinity. he has to go follow it. Yeah, exactly. What's the refusal of the call? He, I have a job. I work in the morning. Does yeah, it, he won't climb out the window. He doesn't. Oh, he doesn't really okay. follow. Yeah, yeah. The, pill, okay. the pills come later. Pills come later. Okay. Pills come later. Okay. We're not even quite there yet. Sorry. And then the next part is supernatural aid. So some sort of magical helper. Campbell says this is often an old man or a crone or somebody that is experienced that can give a token mm. that will help him in his journey. Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan. Who gives him the lightsaber. Who gives wow. him the lightsaber. Okay. What about in in The Matrix? Uh, it's got to be Morpheus. Oh, Not there wait. yet. Oh, uh, old man. If it's, uh, oh, is it the, it's the, 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 the lady with the spoon? There is no spoon. No, that's that later. later. Oh, man. I'm watching Matrix. When a long Trinity time. extracts the bug, remember the little bug that's inside oh, yeah. him, and he's like, "Oh my gosh!" I don't. They're tracking no. me. Yeah, they're tracking really? me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So they pull out this little creature, huh. and there's your supernatural aid from his huh. belly button. From his belly you button. Clearly, remember Matrix much better than me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's had the call. He refuses the call. He meets someone that gives him aid, right? And then he crosses the threshold into the actual adventure, hmm. the real so, story. He, yeah, he yeah. moves from home, from regular life, into actual crazy life. So, so Luke's, what is this? So Luke's Luke? family gets killed, right? Luke's and, family gets killed. So he has he, to go. And then he, he enters into the, the cantina. He enters into the... It's the cantina. You know? Yeah. The oh. cantina is the move from everything he knows beep, beep, into beep, stuff beep, that he doesn't beep, know. Beep, <laughs> what is this for Neo in the Matrix? Goes down the rabbit hole and he gets the pills and he it's chooses the... Yeah, right? He goes into the Matrix or out of the Matrix for the very first time and realizes that everything is illusion and oh my gosh... I have to eat gruel for the rest and of my life. You've been wearing like a burlap sack. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your head's shaved and you're actually, you are actually emaci- emaciated. Yeah. You're right. not. And you're a battery. There's like a USB? Yeah. Like USB plug? 3. It's a yeah, brand yeah, new. No, a USB 4 because oh, it's yeah, a larger that's jack. USB C is smaller. Eventually no, they realize that larger ports are the way to go. <laughs> Much more information. That's it. Good. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand why it's not wireless no in, yeah, the, seriously. Super in the future. future. Yeah. Why can't we jack in with just like Ethernet Wi-Fi? Yeah. Know what I mean? The connection's not good. Oh, it's probably because the, mo- the the robots can hack it and oh, mess good. with you. Sure, sure. Yeah, there so you that has to be a wired connection. Mm-hmm. You're really thinking through this. Mm-hmm. Like muddle your connection with memes so you show up and you're the singing yodeling kid instead of someone who knows karate. Mm-hmm. How many times did you see The Matrix when it was in theaters? Like, were you super excited in when it came theaters? out? Once or yeah. twice? I oh. think once in theaters and then... And then many times after that. And many? then okay. I watched it, the it second one and I didn't like yet it. yet a great film. And I've never watched the third one. Never watched I've, the last one. Yeah, I think I've watched half the second one. And yeah, I never watched that's the, the same third. thing with yeah. me. The, the point at which they lost me in the Matrix series is when they were doing... Remember that... Uh, maybe this was in the third one, so you might not have seen it. But they're like on the roadway and they're all fighting and cars are exploding. The second and, one. When they're fighting like the, the, the white dreaded twins. Yeah, the, right dreaded, the white dreaded twins. Yeah. And at one point, you see a car flip over and then slide past the camera. Uh-huh. And I don't know what happened, but... The visual effects people are just lazy because you can see the dude in the car is clearly wearing a helmet yeah, and yeah, like yeah. braces <laughs> all over. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, people on their commute don't typically wear motorcycle <laughs> helmets yeah. inside their car. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So anyway. I was like, guys, we're at least try. Not even trying. Like at least give it a little effort. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they cross the first threshold, and then they move into the belly of the whale, and this is the final separation of the hero's known world and self. And so he shows. The hero shows a willingness to undergo metamorphosis, unwilling to kind of undergo change, and it's kind of like being fully in and 
ready to go. Okay. So sucked into the Death Star. So and it's actually the trash compactor. And then the mm-hmm. trash compactor. Right, right, right mm-hmm. into the middle of the Death Star. But the trash compactor doesn't seem to have a big transformation for Luke. Like spe- specifically the trash compactor for Luke. Yeah. It, I don't know. It doesn't, and I don't know. I'm thinking that if we're looking at Luke's story on a longer timeline, yeah, yeah, yeah. that the belly of the whale would actually be when he is dealing with Yoda, and yeah, he goes into the creepy the, tree, the three movies, and yeah, he confronts yeah, yeah. himself so, yeah. because this is actually what it's described as: yeah. is the hero confronting himself. He may appear to have died. It's mm-hmm, it's like there's mm-hmm. actual real sure. danger here. There there's real risk. He's gonna change that sort of thing. Because Luke's Luke's journey is all three of those movies, right? Yeah, just be I mean, we can look at the the initial movie, I think, has its own small hero's journey arc, but all three movies have the same kind of thing. Huh. It's rings within rings within <laughs> rings. So, okay, another crazy Star oh. Wars idea is that it's... The rings theory? It's a, it's a chiasm. Oh have you ever goodness. heard of a chiasm? Uh, I've heard of the optic chiasm, but I feel like we're talking about something else. So a chiasm is a method of writing that uh-huh. the Hebrews used to do. And it's a, it's essentially, if you can imagine, kind of a big X or big V. X. Like the beginning. That's what chi- chiasm means X. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The beginning chapter and the final chapter will be mirrors of each other, right? Mm-hmm. An introduction and a conclusion, right? And then, then they will sort of ramp up in importance also with mirroring. So he'll, it'll be like a greeting to people. So introduction, greeting, and then at the very end, you'll have sort of a farewell, and then a conclusion, huh. right? So, so every part sort of parallels each other in this X with a center. Ramping up to a final center mm-hmm. core and, and then, then everything out. flows out of that. And the, I, the notion is that I think it's the... So there is a crazy person on the internet who has written a long <laughs> blog you, treatise, it's not me, be, be saying that the prequels and then, so movie one through six is this... Um, like big elaborate chiasm where the first movie, The Phantom Menace, mirrors Return of the Jedi, mm. almost like frame. He, he's convinced it's like frame for frame. And you know what? It's really it's convincing. It's pretty it? convincing. Oh, it's so con- like you can look at it and almost shot yeah. for shot, things are arranged the same hmm. way. Things are like staged the same and way. And so then a new, hope the mirror li- a, a new Hope mirrors Revenge of the Sith, uh-huh. or the last one was called, and then Empire mirrors Clone Wars, or uh-huh. whatever the movie was called. Yeah, that's it. I'm not necessarily saying it's good. It not may mean that it's overwrought. Good. Okay, good. Um, but, um, yes. But anyway, so the, go read it. I can't remember what it's called. If you just Google Star Wars Ring Theory, you'll find it. Um, I still can't get over the fact that when I was like 18 or whenever Phantom Menace came out, I was so excited and I sat there and I was like, I'm watching a movie about a trade dispute. <laughs> and I was kind of fascinating. Upset. But I'll, but then, um, but then the double sided light, double bladed lightsaber made me happy as a kid. So, or I guess a teenager. And he flips around and it's kind of great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this back a, to, um. Yeah, yeah. So we need, we need to move on. We got a, really a lot of, those. a lot of stuff to cover here. So we are past the departure. He has, he's finally into the adventure. And then we have part two initiation. And then, and so the first part is the road of trials, right? Mm. It's a series of tests that they have to undergo. For Neo, this is sparring with Morth- Morpheus and learning karate. Uh, kung fu. <laughs> Why, isn't that a form of karate? Whoa. I know kung, kung fu, fu that's, is the line. <laughs> what would this be for Luke? If it's learning kung fu uh, for oh, Neo. It's got to be flying around in the X-Wing and blowing up the Death Star. No, it goes to Yoda. Oh. The, the learning. Oh, are we talking isn't about that... just New Hope or are we talking about all three of them? Uh, I was thinking just New Hope, but it's oh, lightsaber oh, practice. Oh, then it's when he's practicing oh, with, like, the blaster shield. Yeah, and, like, the little, with the my little... blast shield down, how am I supposed to fight? <laughs> it's right, the whiniest line. The little dinky line. thing is like, pew, and it, like, zaps him in the shoulder. Ow! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, so the and road of Han trials. Solo gives my favorite line all the favorite Star Wars movies about um, um, hokey religions and laser swords don't beat a blaster on your hip or whatever it is. Mm. Man, I haven't seen it for so long. I gotta go watch it. Alright, so there's the Road of Trials. What's Star Wars? Yeah, let's do it. The meeting with the goddess. This is where the hero gains items that will help him into the future or talks to some powerful goddess that maybe gives him some sort of boon that will help him. For the Matrix, this is the Oracle, right? Mm-hmm. He meets with the goddess, gets some information that's gonna be really useful. For Luke, it's probably meeting with Princess Leia, which is a little bit weird. She kisses him? Yeah, she wears white, gives him a little confidence, I guess. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. But Which is so weird in, yeah, retrospect. in retrospect. yeah. But you're, you're not going to go through classical literature too long until you come across, like... Oedipus. Yeah. yeah. So it's Gross. Just, which is pretty bad. Yep. Okay, and then we have the temptation away from the true path, or woman as temptress. For Luke, this would probably be temptation by the dark side. Mm. Oh. For the Matrix, this is probably temptation to remain... In the Matrix, right? You can stay. You can 
refuse the knowledge that you have, we will give you time to... And isn't there, like, a character... You remember him? He, like, he's eating that steak, and he talks about how... Cypher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The steak is delicious, and it's better just to stay Mm -hmm. in that world. Uh, And then we move to Atonement with the Father. I bet you can guess what this is with Luke. Uh, uh, Literally finding out that Vader is his father. Yeah, It's not Atonement... Unless we're talking about well, like if we're talking about at the at the the long story arc, there really is an atonement with the father. He yeah. stands, and they actually have an atonement. Yeah, and then we move to uh, apotheosis, which is the point of realization in which a greater understanding is achieved. He learns something big, armed with this new knowledge. He is ready for the more difficult part of the adventure or the final push. For Luke, this is probably just atoning with his dad, defeating everybody else, taking control as like the new poster child for the rebellion. Uh, for for Neo, this is probably understanding everything. He's become the one. He knows he's the one. He's embraced it. He knows that he can beat the Smith mm. brothers. Right. The, the many Smiths. Because don't they have the many Smiths at the end of the first movie where they're all flooding him? No, oh. I think that's later okay. when they when Mr. Smith starts taking over everybody. All right, so that's the initiation. And then we have the return. Uh, sorry, next is the ultimate boon. And this is like the big moment, the big push. He has come to the full understanding. He knows he's the one. He knows that it's his responsibility. He's got the, the thing from the goddess. He's got everything and he moves and he finally does the big thing or destroys the Death Star or destroys the Empire, right? Is it in the Matrix? Is it when he like figures out that he can like stop time or whatever it is. And <laughs> yeah, and then he flies. <laughs> yeah. at the, that's the worst part of the first movie when he like flies off like Superman and then, I mean, Rage Against the Machine starts playing, which is a, a which, nice which bonus. makes up for it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wake up! Uh, it's, it's really good. The flying is lame, but humanity's salvation is within reach, right? He knows he can defeat them easily and reorder the Matrix at his will. And then we have the return, right? This is the movement back to normal life. So Hmm. we've moved away from normal life. We've spent time in the crazy. We're heading back from the crazy. So sometimes there's a refusal of the return. They don't want to come back, right? They have a new life. Returning to normal life seems drab or lame. They don't necessarily want to do it, but they kind of have to. So so that's one possibility. These don't necessarily come all in order. There's also the magic flight, um, for Luke, this would be the Millennium Falcon swooping in. If I'm thinking Lord of the Rings, can you imagine what's the magic flight? Scraw. The eagles? The eagles, oh. right? They they help him return from Mordor, where oh. he is. And we actually have Frodo saying he doesn't want to come back, mm. right? He, he'd he rather stay. He's He's been in this new world. He's experienced the ring. He's no longer a normal hobbit that doesn't yeah. like adventure. He's, he's just changed. Not, yeah, he's changed. They are deeply different people than when they started. So going home... They don't necessarily have a place to fit. Sometimes this means rescue from without, someone else helping them, which is another... Han Solo. Yeah, Han Solo, Millennium Falcon. Let's blow this thing and go home. Uh, Then they become master of the two worlds, which is like the victory ceremony. It's Mm -hmm. that they are now in in possession of their two halves, right? Their hero-ness, their homeness, they they have everything within themselves. They are master, and that gives them freedom to live. They no longer fear death. They no longer fear returning home. They are, they have grown, I guess, into what they will eventually be. And that's it. The freedom to live is the final bit of the return. So, initi- you know, leaving, initiation, and return, these are the three parts of the hero's journey. The trouble is that they don't necessarily correspond with one of the greatest myths of all time, the Odyssey. Mm. What would be the call to adventure for Odysseus? It would be off screen, right? Or off script. Be- it would be, be- way at the beginning of his tale. Being, calling, right? being called to go to uh, Troy. We have the refusal of the call, which is yep. setting and his son in front of the plow. Supernatural aid? The gods are always there. Don't they Athena. Favor Athena. Yeah. Right? Helps him out quite a bit. Crossing the first threshold, this would be when they when were... When goes to... Yep. Going to go to war. Yeah. The belly of the whale. He's probably on the beach at Troy. And he actually, in fact, goes inside the, the Trojan horse. horse. Mm-hmm. The road of trials. On the way home. On the way home, probably. Meeting with the goddess. There's lots of them. There's a lot of goddesses. And he meets with lots of them. <laughs> temptation away from the true path. Oh, yeah. Cersei, Calypso. Yeah. Cersei, Calypso. Oh, Cersei especially, mm-hmm. right? Calypso was less of a temptation. But... Oh, poor Calypso. <laughs> oh, man. She's so tragic. I just, oh, I, I feel for Calypso. So sweet. Uh, atonement with the father? Uh, his dad is, is, is lying in like a, a flea blanket. Mm-hmm. Apotheosis, becoming the godlike or mastering everything, realizing that he 
is has come together. So I'd say maybe under the olive bush. He's got a couple. Like he's got the one under the olive bush, and he yeah. comes out all glistening, and everyone's like, "Dang!" Um, <laughs> yeah. But I then he the also meeting... has the big reveal when he takes off his right. his robe, and he's like, "I'm a, I'm not an old crazy person. I'm Odysseus. I'm here to kill you." Right. I think meeting with the goddess would actually also be when he talks to his mom in the underworld, or when he talks to Tiresias in the underworld. Right. Mm-hmm. He gets that thing that will help him return, which is knowledge about what's going on mm-hmm. at home. Mm. Uh, oh, the ultimate the boon yeah, yeah. is when he kills all the dudes, takes control of his house. Refusal of the return. Nope. I mean, maybe it's but ubiquitous. It's everywhere. He kind of refuses. Isn't there, along but the isn't way. there like yeah. an old legend that Odysseus does do another journey? Yes, later. Mm-hmm. He has one more journey after him. I don't know exactly what the journey is. I'd have to study it. So maybe that yeah. is what you're saying. That's kind of the weird thing. Like, there, you, you have to read things outside of the Iliad and the Odyssey to get the whole story. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I guess that could make sense. Rescue from without. Uh, maybe when Athena comes and helps him, I mean, maybe his son in yeah. the final battle. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. Does his son save him in the battle? Not really. Helps him. Yeah. Crossing the return threshold where this is when he finally comes home and he, she actually, I, you know, disguises him. Master of the two worlds. It's where he's, you know, his two halves have become one. Freedom to live is afterwards. So I guess, I guess there's little pieces, but they don't necessarily line up completely. And it's not, it doesn't all happen in the Odyssey. And here, here's my problem with the hero's journey, Right. Does it appear often in myths? Absolutely. Sure. Mm-hmm. Especially when the, the thing is designed to be like Apollo, it, like yeah. Star Wars, right? It's, mm-hmm. It is designed to be the hero's journey. And in fact, they teach it in a lot of writing classes mm-hmm. as an easy way to do it. Because it's just an easy archetype. Mm-hmm. But really, I don't think that it's there's some deep monomyth in humanity. I think it's honestly just recognizing elements of good storytelling. Mm. There cannot be a story unless the guy gets a call to adventure. Yeah. There's no story if it's just talking about him going to the store at home. That's not something people want to hear or read, right? The refusal of the call. Well, who, what normal person wants to go and face mortal peril? Nobody. That's what I, I'm just wondering if this is all really similar to the, um, what's the, it's like the five stages and um, your exposition, your rising action. Oh, I was like Daniel anger, Wall. denial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, no but isn't it, doesn't this all feel really similar to that also? Yeah, yeah. I, and... And I mean, crossing the first threshold. Well, at some point, you have to actually get into the adventure. Right. Supernatural aid. Well, if you don't have someone helping you, you don't really know where to go. You're just going to wander around in the forest for a while. Yeah. For Frodo, this is uh, the wizard. What's his name? Gandalf. Oh, Gandalf. Oh, right? If he didn't have Gandalf, what, what's he going to do? Just go north? He doesn't know where anything is. He's a hobbit. Yeah. Right? So you need someone to tell you where to go. Uh, then the road of trials. Well, it's not an interesting story unless there's something to do. Meeting with the goddess, that's just cool. And... <laughs> Joseph Campbell actually points out that they're not in every story, mm-hmm. right? They don't always appear. There's elements, but not always each element. And I think what he's doing is just recognizing cool stories. Yeah. And and like going to the, the, he talks about the belly of the world, right? Going to the world navel or the most, the place where all the knowledge is kept and meeting with the great God. And I think this is really just authors going like, what's the coolest place you can go? Hell, or to talk to God or the gods. And when you're writing an epic about an epic king, you're going to send him to the coolest place you can. You're not going to be like, he went to Canada. (laughs) So, but I mean, as human beings, we like to categorize things and categorizing things is helpful. Like being able to put things into categories carries a lot of mental freight for us. It really helps us understand something. Sure. But when you make it a complete, like, when you, when you make it a th- the thing itself and, and you eliminate the possibility for understanding everything outside of a category, you can become bound by your category and then you can kind of, you know, the world is not in categories. We've put, we've invented categories to help us understand the world. And then as soon as we say the category is the only thing and then we have something that falls outside of it, we don't, you know, it's just we don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. I don't know. This is sort of... We haven't done a good podcast on Aristotle, but Aristotle is interesting in this because he categorizes everything, and, and he was sort of a very systematic person, um, but it doesn't explain everything. This is the central tension of systematic theology, and you want to create a theology that explains everything, but you can't explain God with a systematic theology, but you can do it. You can get you can get really close to it. Yeah. Um, but if you think that you that your system can under can contain everything, um, it's hubris. I don't know. I, I I find it a fascinating thought because we are in a world where we say if we can gather data, 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 data. If we can get all the data we can get with all of the computing power we can get, we can predict or understand 
things better and create these models that can explain everything. And it's this rush to explaining everything. And yes, we can explain a lot of things or predict a lot of things, but, but you can't. Everything. But not everything. Yeah. Um, and well, so but, that's like the, what this, what the, you know, the hero's story archetype. Yeah. But, well, my point is, you can do this with almost anything, yeah. right? If I was recognizing elements of a class, I would say there's the crossing of the first threshold. They walk through my door. Yep. There's the meeting with the mentor. It's you, hey, the it's teacher. You. Yeah. There's the road of trials and the meeting with the unknown. Well, they're going to meet stuff they don't know yet. Then comes, you know, persistence and mastery, and then the freedom and the new knowledge, and then eventually the exit. Right? I could. I could. Where is give... the navel of the classroom? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um, the Beowulf test. Yeah. yeah exactly. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's the yeah. Probably the Odyssey test. There that's is. the toughest one. <laughs> But that's my point, is yeah. that I think Joseph Campbell, he's not, I don't think he's doing anything revolutionary. And I don't think you mm. as a listener, a listener have to read his book to understand myth. I think he's just putting together all of these elements of storytelling that are there. Can you use it to be a model for good storytelling? Yes. Sure. And Absolutely. we've seen it. And we have uh, Star Wars. Yeah, we've seen it work. But do you need this to understand myth? I don't think so. Do you need this to be a good storyteller? I think it's more important to have a good understanding of humanity than it is to understand the monomyth, right? I mean, this is taught in college classes. It's taught in writing classes. But from what I can tell, all it is is a recognition of what good storytelling is. Aren't you agreeing with him then? Oh, we have a... I think we got a plane flying Flying overhead. If you can hear that as an audience, sounds like a missile. Does that make it a bad thing, like, um, to say this is how good stories have been told in the past? Like... No. Isn't it fine just to say that? No, I don't, I don't. I think that's totally fine. But I think it's, it would be wrong to, uh, to tie more meaning to this than it deserves, mm-hmm. okay. right? <clears throat> to say that this is the only way to tell a good story. Yeah. Or, or that this is saying something completely revolutionary about how our myths are made and how they talk to the human person, right? It's just, it's just storytelling, mm-hmm. right? People telling good, non-boring stories. So what part of the hero's journey is where in the next movie you bring everybody back to the same place they were before and all the character progression that happened doesn't happen in Han Solo's a smuggler again and not married? Sorry. Yeah, prequel movies. But the hero's journey is a circle, isn't it? Like, yeah. Isn't there, mm-hmm. there a repetitive nature to it too? So. Oh, well, he can be called to adventure again, I again, suppose. A new adventure. I don't know. Just the newest movies, Star Wars movies, bum me out. Okay. You not, sorry. M- moving on from the hero's journey, we got one more thing to talk about today. Bowls. If that's okay. Golden uh, bowls. Yep. And I know that's weird. For only $9.99. Yeah. You can be the proud owner. You too can have a classical <laughs> stuff you should know. Golden We're bowls. We're expanding our, uh, our sales. The, the yeah. Is your thing. cereal in the morning really dry? <laughs> <laughs> the great thing Golden is bowls. my when I graduated from college, our commencement speaker, our valedictorian, her whole speech was about drinking from the golden goblet of knowledge. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh, man, it was <laughs> It was a speech. <laughs> so it was a memorable speech. And the, it just, the whole analogy stretched way too long. <laughs> the professors fill that golden bowl. We, our brains, are the golden bowl. And we have the choice to drink or not to drink wow. from the golden go. golden goblet. And I just, it was real <laughs> painful. Our, uh, commencement, I'm sorry if you're listening. I was not a fan. Our commencement address. So if you've ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting, uh-huh. so filmed at the University of Toronto. Oh. And there's the one guy who is, he's, uh, so Will Hunting comes in and he's all like swagger math. And um, and uh, he, he comes in and he swagger takes math. over... Um, uh, sort of the attention of this older professor who's played by that Danish guy. Um, and the the professor has had this other kid who's like his TA or whatever who hates Matt Damon and he's and because and, he works really hard and he's not a genius. Anyway, that actor actually is a real mathematician who's brilliant. Wow. And he spoke at my commencement. Wait, the, the kid? The, the, the other kid? The, the other kid who played the like the the guy who was upset that Will Hunting yeah. came in and took his professor. He is actually a, a really um, a successful mathematician. And hmm. he spoke at the commencement address, and I didn't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let me relate our journey through college to an equation. Yeah. <laughs> he may have talked about The Matrix, but not the movie. <laughs> we are X, and our hearts are when X is placed yeah. over negative one. And everyone's just like, what, what, what is, is he talking about? about? Okay. Hey, what about Golden Bulls? So golden, the Golden Bull theory, as it relates to the Odyssey, is, is that uh, Odysseus goes all over the place, right? He is at the island of Circe. He's at the island of Calypso. And if you look at a map of where he traveled in Greece, 
It's total insanity. At one point, he's almost home. Then he goes back to the island of the god of the wind, Aeolus. And then he he's in the underworld. He's all over the place. And it's really hard to sort of put together a mental picture of what his journey was or looked like. Well, nearby in Egypt, it was a common trope to have a, a bowl or a plate with engravings around the edge, right? And this isn't only in Egypt, right? We see kind of the same thing happen with the Hebrews and the same thing happen with uh, the Gilgamesh folk. What are they called? The Sumerians. The, Sumerians the, the, yeah, so the Sumerian culture, same kind of thing. And it's, it's a pretty common depiction of w- what we would call a cosmic journey where a hero leaves the center of the bowl travels around a series of trials depicted in small carvings around the edge of the bowl, and then sort of re-enters normal life after having completed the circuit. And the circuit follows the path of the sun. So the way they understood the sun to work in ancient cosmology is that in the mornings, it would sort of blunk, like jump out of the ocean, Uh and then kind of make its circuit across the sky in its sphere, and then go kablunk back into the ocean at the end of the night, and then travel under the earth as it was kind of a big flat disc or through Tartarus or whatever, and then, you know, to to jump out of the ocean again at a later time. And in Egypt, this is often depicted as relating to goddesses, the (laughs) goddess of the sky or the god of the sky and the goddess of night. And so the the sun would sort of follow these two things and be in their realms. And there was sort of a whole rebirth imagery happening when the sun is rebirthed in the morning. And then, so there's two kind of cosmic junctures, one in the east and one in the west, where sky and underworld meet, right? Mm. They are so close at these cosmic junctures where the the sun comes out of the ocean and goes back into the ocean. Mm. So if we think of Odysseus's journey less as a random journey all over Greece and more like following the path of the sun, it might make a little more sense, right? Because if I'm going to remind you of a little bit of Greek cosmology here, but they understood all of all of the disk of the earth, a big flat disk, to be surrounded by something called the ocean river, right? It was just this big river that went around the whole thing, and past that became the kind of the area of night or twilight, because you were actually outside where the sun reached, right? Mm-hmm. The sun made this big circuit, and if you went past where the sun came out of the water— well, you were in twilight. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what happens to Odysseus when he visits the land of the dead. It's easy to miss when you're reading the Odyssey because it just says, we sailed past the ocean river and then we got to the land of the people of the night. But this is a huge deal, right? It's it's enormous. Yeah. He just passed out of the known universe mm-hmm. into the unknown universe to talk to the folks of the dead, past where the sun rises, and then eventually he comes back in. And the island he meets prior to that episode is the island of Circe, mm. who is the daughter of the sun. Mm. Right? Well, it says that her, her house is where the sun rises mm. in the east. And so if we think of her kind of like a goddess at the cosmic juncture, like the there's Isis and Nephthys that are the two sisters who protect the dead in, I think, Egyptian it's mythology. Egyptian. Yeah. yeah. So if we think of Calypso on one side, the west, because oh, At- she's the daughter of Atlas, mm. who stood in the west, according to Hesiod, I think. And then Circe, who lives in the east, we can think of Odysseus's journey like following the path of the sun. The first half is we find him often in caves, often threatened with oblivion. We have the the lotus eaters, right? We have the cyclops happens in the cave, and so he's following the path of night. And then he hits the cosmic juncture, the east at Circe's house, where the sun rises. He goes blunk out of the world, talks to some folks of the dead, goes blunk back into the world, and then continues on the path of the sun, past the Sirens, Scylla and Charybdis, and then he actually hits the island of the sun, the right, and eats the cattle of the sun, continues on to Calypso's island, which is the last juncture before he can re-enter normal everyday life, Mm. right? And as he re-enters normal everyday life, he actually loses everything. So he he cannot return to this cosmic journey. So an easy way to understand Odyssey's, Odysseus's journey is to think of it less like, like I said, like the a Earth random theory. traveling around, mm-hmm. around oh, everywhere, mm-hmm. but more like a circuit of the known cosmos. Mm-hmm. He hits, he follows the path of the sun, traveling around the known universe, even visiting the realm of the gods, exiting where the sun shines. He sort of goes on this big cosmic tour, right? It's an, it's an easy way to think of this. It's kind of like what Dante did, right? Dante went through the known universe as, as the medievals understood it, well, Odysseus may have done the same thing. Mm. So I present this idea to my freshmen, mm-hmm. and they usually reject it, right? Because? 
because it feels like a stretch. Mm. The Journey of the Sun is a very small portion Freshmen of the Freshmen hate order. <laughs> wow, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so that means they reject the hero's journey too, yeah. right? Yeah, probably. Okay, good. Uh, well, it's it's that the last half of the journey is really short, mm. and that I mean he he hangs out with the Cyclops, but it's not like he it's dark all the time, mm. right? He he goes into a cave. It doesn't it doesn't it's not Cyclops really Cyclops gets blinded. Oops. Right, it's not really overt. It's pretty dark. That uh, that Cersei is where the sun rises. It's especially not overt that Calypso is in the west. I mean, it, it seems like we're trying to pull together some pretty sketchy pieces here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ocean river, usually for the Egyptians, it was Ouroboros, the, the snake that eats his tail representing eternity that goes around the edge of the bowl. So I don't know. It seems, it feels like a stretch, mm-hmm. right? And it feels kind of to me like a stretch. But it would have been a common trope for the Greeks. They would have had bowls like this that depicted these mm-hmm. heroes' journeys. Or at least they would have seen them with the nearby Egyptians because they're kind of all over the place. Yeah. I just think that maybe it's an easier way for you as a reader to think of the Odyssey, right? He visits gods, he visits goddesses, he goes out of the realm of the sun. Mm-hmm. That that much is true. That actually does happen. So it's an easy way to sort of think of him making a circuit of the cosmos mm-hmm. and getting to tour those places that the Greeks would not have been able to tour. But would you say that uh, Golden Bull would explain the Odyssey well, but maybe wouldn't explain other epic myths as well, but the hero's journey applies to more stories than the Golden Bull theory would? I just, I wanted, there's no sense to putting them both together other than they both relate to the Odyssey. I I wasn't trying to draw a parallel between the two. I'm asking if you think Golden Bull is better for the Odyssey than the hero's journey. Because what you said is that there are parts of the hero's journey that are missing in the myth. Or at least that they don't, it doesn't feel like they are orderly. Mm -hmm. I think that they both are aids to understanding what is happening in the Odyssey, but I think perhaps the best way to approach it is just to read it like a story, right? Think of him as a person going through a trial and try to take lessons from it if you can. It may, maybe they're just, yeah, aids to understanding. Mm-hmm. And it actually does, we see the same hero's journey or the, the cosmic bowl journey happen with Gilgamesh a little mm-hmm. bit too. Remember, he goes through one of the cosmic junctures. He travels under the mountains through the darkness and then ends sort of in the realm of light and the gods. And I think the mountain he traveled through was legended to have its roots like in the bottom of the earth mm. and its roof in the sky. So he kind of does this same kind of bowl journey and then returns. Yeah. And I bet you see more of that since you teach ancient literature, mm-hmm. right? Because by sophomore year, I don't know, is the golden bowl something? Frankenstein isn't really hitting <laughs> all the <laughs> cosmic spots I mean, in the same just, way. But we just do less epics. We yeah. just do less so, epics in 10th grade and we're in, and, and in novels or... Um, I mean, we do we do Paradise Lost, but I've never sat down and sort of thought because we don't read all of Paradise Lost in tenth grade. Uh, we just read um, books one through four, and then and nine through twelve. So I've never really gone through and thought about like the the, the structure of Paradise Lost as a whole. But I'm sure I mean Milton was brilliant, so I'm sure there's something. Yeah, I'm sure like you you don't write an epic without reading being the completely there. like drenched in in the structure of old epics, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I hope this cool. has help, helped you to understand the Odyssey and kind of approach it with a new, you know, with with a little bit more knowledge. Uh, we. So I have a last sort of final question. If you were going to write a story, or if you were going to write something uh, like a, a, a hero story, AJ, would you personally say I'm going to have the hero's journey and the golden bowl, just the rough outlines? I'm going to have them on a piece of paper beside me as I think about my plot, or are you just going to um, or do you think that that's kind of hokey? Hmm. Or would you just sort of sh- um, do, quote, do cool stuff, like what you said earlier? I think, I mean, it's hard to avoid having elements of the hero's journey in there, and it does provide a good structure. Mm-hmm. I would think a lot more about the kind of character that I wanted to build and s- style, perhaps. I, I don't think it'd be a bad way to go about things. The cosmic journey, maybe not so much. Yeah. We're a little less tied to that these days. But thinking about, okay, he needs some sort of call to adventure, he needs to want to stay home because all of us do. Then he needs someone to tell him where to go. Like that's that's pretty good writing style, right? That happens in a lot of in a lot of things. Yeah. Cool. Anybody have a commonplace book offering? Negative. H. Berg. I had I had one, but I left it in the car. I also <laughs> do not have any because that's the way I do things. Um. <laughs> okay, we we would like to hear from you about the writing episode. If you'd like to learn some basic style things on how to write well, I would like to know if that would be something that you would 
benefit from. Yeah, maybe a little bit more of a technical podcast, but... Yeah, uh, a little bit. I could make it entertaining, I promise you. I'm sure you could. Yeah. I believe. So, this has been a journey, a Mm, hero's journey, if you will. Oh my gosh, I even believe that this (laughs) podcast... If you have, if you will go back to the beginning of this podcast, please tell us if we in this yeah. podcast have followed, inadvertently yeah. followed the hero's journey or the golden bowl theory. Mm. I would. I love, refuse the call. I would <laughs> love to hear. I'm refusing it now. The call. At, the, at the place, uh, I would love to see that mapped out for us. Thank you. Um, and you can send that to us at <laughs> classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us at classicalstuff.net. You can, you can quote towards us at. <laughs> Classical stuff Ugh. at no, at it's just at, it's yeah. at yeah. Uh, at yeah. Twitter's. Um, you can find. It sounds. Us. It sounds like when we're trying to say the Twitter handle that we have like a frog in our it's mouth like, who is yeah. actively hugging our tongue. If we're you to... are classical stuff at Twitter and you want to donate your uh, username to us, like hit us up, man. We can do like uh, an exchange of money in a briefcase in an Wait, alley. What? No, what? Ooh, dibs! I want to do that. Yeah. Wait, can I be the sniper? Yes. Oh no! Oh, this is fun. <laughs> I'm anyway. out. If he doesn't deliver the. The address. The at. We take him out. We take him down. <laughs> yeah. Um, did I just threaten murder? On yeah, the I think he just podcast? did. Yeah. Um, That's going to be anyway. It's okay. I'm a terrible there. shot. Oh, that's okay. actually not Trump. That, kind of a good shot. No, oh. take him down is like um, you're not helping your case. I know. It's like a euphemism for going out for dinner. Like we're going to take him down. Taking him down. Taking him down. Taking him down. Taking him downtown. We're going to Outback Steakhouse. And oh, Outback. Well, they have the blooming onion, right? Yeah, yeah. The blooming onion, which sounds like. Disgusting. Or just like a disease in the Middle Ages. <laughs> it sounds like maybe an onion that you left in the dark closet right. for too long. Yeah, and you yeah. Open up, like, oh, it's uh, Spores everywhere. All right. Uh, but thank you and for And on listening. that positive note. <laughs> yes. um, uh, go forth, our little blooming onions ah, out yes. there and uh, blooming with knowledge. Heed and we thank you for listening. Heed the call. Find a mentor. That's right. Go through the road of trials. Talk to the goddess because she cute. She cute. Refuse the temptation of the goddesses, other goddesses that are bad ones. Atone with your father, etc. That's a great. That's that's just good advice. Yeah. Good. All right. This is classical stuff. Signing off. Bye. Bye. Bye.